Welcome back to the Neuroscience Meets Social and Emotional Learning podcast for episode number 155. With Adam Tyner from the Fordham Institute, an organization that promotes educational excellence for every child in America, via quality research, analysis, and commentary on his newly released report, How to Sell SEL, Parents and the Politics of Social and Emotional Learning. I'm Andrea Samadhi, author and educator from Toronto, Canada, now in Arizona, and like many of our listeners, have been fascinated with learning and understanding the science behind high-performance strategies in our schools, in our sports and workplace environments with ideas that we can all use, understand and implement immediately. We do this by covering the science-based evidence behind social and emotional learning for schools and emotional intelligence training in the workplace. Our podcast provides tools, resources, and ideas for parents, teachers, and employees to improve well-being, achievement, and productivity using simple neuroscience as it relates to our cognitive, the skills our brain uses to think, read, remember, and pay attention, and then our social and interpersonal relationships with ourselves and others, and emotional learning where we recognize and manage our emotions demonstrate empathy, and cope with frustration and stress. This past week, as I was researching and learning new ideas for upcoming episodes, I saw a notification come through my phone from Twitter that caught my attention. It was from Victoria McDougald from the Fordham Institute in Washington, DC. And she let me know that they were about to release a new report that explores how parents view SEL and how they want it taught in schools. We've all seen how the mental health challenges imposed by the COVID-19 pandemic have made it more urgent to better support students' social emotional learning needs while also advancing their academic learning. So I put down what I was doing and wrote her back immediately. This topic is urgent, timely, and important. Every day I see emails about trainings in our schools to support our students' SEL needs, and the challenges that we've all faced are not going away, They're changing and persisting in a way that I don't think any of us imagined. The challenges that I've seen from the beginning of watching SEL being implemented in our schools across the US, and I started watching these webinars in about 2014 with just eight states to our present day where all 50 states have some sort of SEL implementation plan, is that educators saw the importance of SEL, but didn't know where to begin. They weren't sure which program to use, how to integrate the SEL competencies into the curriculum. And following many of these early SEL webinars, I noticed this was a common theme. This is why we launched the Neuroscience Meets Social and Emotional Learning podcast in June of 2019 to gather ideas, strategies, and best practices for those interested in learning more about this topic with easy to understand implementation strategies and ideas for our schools and workplaces. And the topics we cover on this podcast were going to be an introduction to SEL course with a well-known educational publisher. But when this direction changed, I decided to put the content out to the world for free to help support educators and those in the workplace. 
I had no idea that this podcast would gain a global following going into 153 countries and approaching 100,000 downloads over 8,000 a month, as we noticed that educators and those in the workplace were looking for new ways to sharpen their saw with these skills that are not new, but are newly important. If this was how educators were feeling or employees in their workplaces, I wondered what parents would be thinking and feeling. Does the everyday modern parent know what social and emotional skills are? Since launching the podcast, I've had constant feedback from people around the world about how these topics are helping people, whether it's a superintendent in our schools running their district or principals running their school sites or teachers running their classrooms or parents looking to find new ideas to inspire themselves at work or with their own children. As you can see from the topics we cover, these skills that we've tied to the most current brain research are not just about teaching our next generation to be responsible citizens or to be respectful. There are six competencies that we focused on based on the research from Castle.org, and implementing these competencies is an important task not only for our students, but also for our teachers. And I saw this emerge as a clear, hot topic with my interview with Che and Pav on their Staff Room podcast. And they are two phenomenal educators from Toronto who cover educational topics to improve the next generation of teachers and students. And it became clear that teachers can see the importance of modeling these skills in our classrooms of the future, integrating them into core subject areas. But what do parents think? This is what we'll explore on today's episode. I look closer at Victoria's message to me on Twitter, and she reminded me that as we enter another pandemic year, the results of this first of its kind survey will help educators, policymakers, and philanthropists gain stronger parental support and better help students navigate this exceptionally challenging time. And my response to her was, how soon can we speak? The report written by Adam Tyner and the forward and executive summary by Amber Northern and Michael J. Petrel show five key findings that we'll dive deep into with our questions, starting with the premise that America's hard-nosed focus on academic achievement in recent decades has not improved schools nearly enough, and that the common core wars taught us that mishandling communication about education reforms can derail good intentions. So the Fordham Institute partnered with YouGov, a global public opinion firm, to develop a nationally representative survey of 2,000 parents to gain greater clarity on what parents of K-12 students think about SEL, how they understand it, whether they see it as more help or hindrance, and whether they have concerns about its implementation. Since there's a political angle to this report, I wanted to mention that I'm a new U.S. citizen as of September 2018, and I've only voted once. I was born in Great Britain, grew up in Toronto, Canada, and moved to Arizona, USA, just a few months before 9-11-2001 with a vision to make an impact with education after the Columbine tragedy with SEL skills as my motivator. I'm really interested to dive deep with the report author, data analyst, and project manager, Adam Tyner, on the results and findings to see if we can bring more clarity for educators and parents on the future of SEL in our schools and demystify these social and emotional skills that I've dedicated my life's work towards with the hopes that some change occurs in our schools and communities of the future. Let's meet Adam Tyner. 
Welcome, Adam Tyner. Thank you so much for meeting with me so quickly after the release of this report. I'm sure that you recognize that I see how important and timely this topic is. Yeah, thanks for having me, Andrew. Absolutely. Well, Adam, before we get to the questions and the top findings of your report, I've got to ask you, how was your honeymoon? Because I know you've just returned and congratulations on this new milestone in your life. Life isn't all about work or we would all burn out fast. So how was it? It was great. Yeah, thanks. We got back a few days ago and um, I think we we got married actually in February, but it wasn't really a good time to be taking a, a, a long honeymoon at that point um, because of the pandemic and everything. And I think we maybe made it just in time here before we maybe are all going to shut down again. But no. Um, but no, we had a great time. Thanks. Awesome. Awesome. Well, I had to ask. So let's get to work and dive into your findings on your how to sell SEL report that I've been reading this weekend. Haven't been able to put down. It's making the wheels turn for me. What I wanted to do on this podcast, Adam, was to go through each of the five key findings and discuss each one, perhaps to bring more clarity around each of the areas that you've uncovered as important for parents of K-12 students. How does that sound? Sounds great. Perfect. Okay, so for finding number one, you found that there's a broad support among parents teaching SEL related skills in schools, although the term social and emotional learning is relatively unpopular. So I looked at figure one and I'm putting this in the show notes and it will be in the video of, of us um, talking here so people can have a look at the results. But what I wondered was, are parents clear about what social and emotional skills really are? Well, so you know, we did the survey at the, my colleagues and I at the Thomas B. Fordham Institute uh, teamed up with YouGov, the international polling firm, to do this survey of 2,000 parents of K through 12 students, kindergarten through grade 12 students, um, in order to really answer the question that you were asking, like, what do parents know and think about social emotional learning and related topics? And we didn't, the truth is that we, this is a, a buzzword, this is a thing that's been coming around a lot for the last few years, especially in the last five years or so. This is something that's gained a lot of momentum. And we don't really have a ton of information about how parents uh, view the topic and, you know, how, what kind of opinions they have about different dimensions of social emotional learning or about concerns they have about the way it might be implemented in schools or whether they see kind of uh, trade-offs between uh, social emotional learning and more traditional academic learning. It was just something that there wasn't a whole lot of information about. And so we commissioned the survey and conducted this survey on a large group of nationally representative group of parents uh, exactly to answer those kinds of questions. And so um, I think that, you know, one way of, of Okay, your question about, you know, their, which ones they prioritize, which social and emotional skills they prioritize, I, I would see it a little differently, because the figure that you're referring to shows different dimensions of social emotional learning that align to, we use the Harvard rubric for this, so there's, there's I think, a couple more dimensions um, than some other of these, but 
Um, it, it has cognitive elements, it has emotional elements, empathy. You're right that empathy was the last one on the list. That's true. But I don't really see it that way. I see it more as 80% of parents supported all of those things being taught in school. And the difference was between 80% and 90%. The fact that empathy was slightly lower to me doesn't isn't the, the main story. The main story, I think, is that there's broad agreement among parents about the substance of social and emotional learning being taught in schools. One thing, well, there's a few caveats to that. And one of those caveats is that the term itself isn't particularly appealing to parents. I think for a lot of parents, it is a, it, it sounds kind of, I don't know, we say in my field kind of wonky, like sounds like something that a policy wonk would say, or an ivory tower kind of way of describing something. And so the, the flip side of the substance being relatively popular with parents is that the term itself really wasn't. And when we, so we, we did an exercise where we looked at different uh, program names and they, they were all programs that were kind of like, okay, they're not all exactly social and emotional learning. Some of them overlap a bit with social and emotional learning, but we looked at different program names like 21st century skills or grit and growth mindset or um, uh, success factors, soft skills, life skills, different things that kind of overlap with some of the concepts of social and emotional learning. And when we when we asked them, like, which of these would you like to have your child enrolled in? And which would you definitely not want your child to be enrolled in? Social and emotional learning was actually, it got the second worst ratings among our nationally representative pool of parents. That term didn't resonate with them. Now, if you add academic into the term and call it social, emotional, and academic learning, it gets much better response from parents. But in fact, the, the, the term that parents like the most is the term life skills, which many education policy wonks like myself really don't like because it is associated with the you know, life adjustment education from the mid and early 20th century, where it was meant to make education more practical and democratic, but many people saw that it was kind of not rigorous and not academic, and the Soviets were sending satellites into space, and we were just teaching kids how to blow their nose, is how some critics put it. So that's kind of how it sounds to us as experts, but to the common parent, in our nationally representative survey, life skills sounds pretty good. So um, I, I think there's broad support. Again, I think my broad takeaway is that there's a lot of support for the substance of social and emotional learning among many different types of parents, Democrats, Republicans, men, women, social class. There's a lot of support for the substance, but the terminology, not as much. And, you know, we can get into it, but there's, you know, there are some demographic groups where you see just softer support for some of this stuff or concerns about it, maybe uh, kind of crowding out other functions of schools like, you know, the core academic uh, goals and, that schools have and some concerns around that. But um, but that's how I read that. I don't actually read it as empathy is an important, empathy was last on the list, but empathy still got like 80% support. So um, that's how I see it. Got it. I like that answer. That's good. So when I was looking at your report, it, I just couldn't help but see 
that I still think that people didn't really understand the term. So I'm just imagining myself as a parent sitting here being asked, you know, fill out this survey and tell me what what program you would want. And I actually saw a report from Hank Resnick. He did it for the Aspen Institute and he divided social and emotional competencies into the ones that are cognitive, that our brain uses, the ones that are social and interpersonal, and then the ones that are emotional. Because I think when we see social Social emotional learning, we think a lot of us think, oh, it's all about like holding the door or being respectful. And that has nothing, in my opinion, to do with academics until you link these skills like Hossel did to the research that shows the 11 point academic game. So I just wondered, did these parents know that this has research now that backs that it does students that that do study these skills do have a stronger correlation to, to their academic achievement? I think that, I mean, this is one of the benefits of doing a, a nationally representative survey of, of parents is that sometimes it's real hard to get in somebody else's mm -hmm. mind. It's hard to get into somebody else's shoes and think, okay, when they hear these terms, how do they sound, how, how does that sound to them? That's a very difficult uh, thing to do. And surveys like this, I think, can help to give us some of that information and help us with 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 that. And I, I think that the answer is that if you just call it social and emotional learning, no, most parents don't know any of the research around any of that. And so um, it, it, instead, I, I tend to think that the research sometimes can be a little superfluous because the the core ideas behind social and emotional learning are not they're not something that science discovered five years ago or 10 years ago or 20 years ago. I mean, most of us know whether you're educated or not, whether you know what the term social emotional learning means or not, you know that you're probably not going to do well in school or work or maybe even in life if you don't stick to stuff, if you don't have motivation, if you don't know how to cooperate and work with other people, you're going to have difficulties. And so I, I guess I think that some of the buzz around social emotional learning and the term can almost be a little bit harmful to the cause because uh, you're making it kind of sound like something that somebody just figured out when, you know, many of the ideas behind social emotional learning are probably ideas that have been part of educational ideals since education has existed, you know, for not just like decades, but like thousands of years. Exactly. So, so I, I guess I think the term it's a whether parents know the research and everything, I think it's pretty clear that parents do support a lot of the substance and they know that they want their kid to learn reasoning and problem solving. They want their child to learn how to get along well with other people. And they think, and be, you know, learn sensitivity to different cultures, stuff like that is important to them. Um, if you brand it in certain ways, it may turn them off. Okay, that makes sense. So going to your finding number two, so it was Democratic parents favor schools allocating additional resources to SEL more than Republican parents too. So in, in the uh, backstory, I explain that I'm a new US citizen as of 2018. So I don't look at topics like this and with a political lens. This was a new thing for me to do. So when I was looking at this, I was thinking, well, I saw a discrepancy. So the the biggest the biggest jump was the 89 percent 
of Democrats versus 75% of Republicans, student social and emotional needs must be met in order for them to reach their full academic potential. Well, regardless of what political party they are, if they knew the research behind it, that, that these skills have been research proven to improve academic gains, wouldn't they, wouldn't it be 100 and 100? That was that was what I thought. What did you find about um, what what did you see with your findings number two? Well, so we went into this asking, uh, like I said, lots of different questions around these topics. And you know, the entire report is available at FordhamInstitute.org. You can look at the entire report. It's we did it this time through an interactive website rather than just doing it in a PDF. So it'd be easy if you're on your iPad or on your phone and you want to check it out, you can just uh, you know, look at sel.fordhaminstitute.org, or you can just Google Fordham Institute. It'll be the first thing that comes up, the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, um, and, uh, and, and look at the report for yourself. But when we looked and we asked all of these questions, and, you know, we had a lot of information about these uh, parents because our, our partner, YouGov, has, uh, you know, really strong information about, about, you know, who they voted for and, and their gender and their religiosity. And we've got like five different ways that their religion is coded and five different ways their politics are coded and all this stuff. Uh, we have lots of different ways of looking at these, you know, kind of slicing and dicing the data. And we what we found was that the, the factor that was the most predictive of uh, parents' opinions about SEL in the survey was their partisanship, whether they were Democrat or Republican. And that I, I say that that was the strongest predictor because it was the strongest predictor overall. There were a few questions where that wasn't the case. But for, I think, about half of the questions on the survey, that was the best predictor. And so, um, you know, part of that, I think, is due to just political polarization in the United States. Politics is beginning to kind of subsume many other identities that used to be more salient, regional identities and racial identities and even religious identities are just less salient to people than their political identities these days. Um, for better or worse, many people see this as a pretty negative thing. Um, it's a fact of American politics. And there's a great book last year that came out by Ezra Klein on political polarization. He kind of sees it as a more of a mixed bag than I do. I see it more as a negative thing. But it doesn't actually, it, it kind of makes sense that um, if, if we were to look at your gender or your race, that might not be as predictive as your politics, considering that your politics is something that you have more agency over in the first place, and it has to do with your beliefs. And so um, that just was the more predictive um, uh, variable. And so it became something that we looked at, especially throughout the report. What we found was that Republicans generally support social and emotional learning in schools. They generally do, but their, their support is softer than the report than the support for that Democrats have. So the, the one that you gave as an example is a pretty good one because in the example that you gave, it was 90% and 75%, something like that, who said that students need to meet, uh, they need to have their social and emotional needs met in order to succeed at school. Um, so it wasn't like it was 10% of Republicans or something. It was actually a large majority of Republicans who agreed with that. It just wasn't quite as important to them as it was for the Democrats, who it was more like 90% when you're coming close to unanimity at 90%. So 
Um, I, I think, you know, there's probably a few different reasons for that, uh, but in the modern kind of on the political right, in, especially since the 2016 election, it's been very clear that there's a populist anti-elite strain. At least that's the way many of those people see themselves. And by introducing a term that sounds kind of ivory tower, you might be turning off some people who kind of have a little bit of a, a mentality that it says, like, I'm not interested in what those, you know, experts and policy wonks say. And if you talk to them, they may even have some some good reason for that, because let's be honest, experts and policy wonks haven't really like they don't have a perfect record. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, sometimes we do oversell the findings that we have in our research. Sometimes people open up the newspaper and they see that chocolate gives them cancer. And then the next month they open the newspaper and find out that eating chocolate leads to a longer life. And these kinds of things, exaggerations by academics, the way that journalists tend to kind of exaggerate, you know, or the importance of, of certain scientific findings, fads, around science and in education, they all make people kind of have a second, you know, kind of think skeptically about what they're told by elites and experts. And that's not all bad, but I think that part of the reason you see this softer support among Republicans for social and emotional learning in the substance and in the name is a little bit of that. It's a little bit of kind of like there's an old thing in education about the three R's, reading, writing, arithmetic. That's what schools should be doing. They shouldn't be trying to do social engineering. They shouldn't be trying to teach morality or whatever. Those things are, should be left to families or whatever else. There's a longstanding tradition of that concept of education. And I think you're seeing a little more of that among Republicans in the sample that, that we had in the, this nationally representative sample. When you look at parents of all different types, um, that's kind of what stands out. Got it. And when I was first looking at this report and trying to come up with some questions for you, for you, and when I got stumped, of course, I consult with people who are smarter than me. Um, Horatio Sanchez is someone I interviewed. Um, he's the author of The Poverty Problem. Our, our interview took the turn of race and culture. And when I was talking to him about some of these findings, he actually said, you know, I, it just comes back to the fact I don't think that parents still see the importance of the social emotional skills and how the brain interacts. So like going back to the first findings with the goal setting being important and then the empathy, he said empathy plays a critical role in reading comprehension. So his research has uncovered that when you have low em empathy, your comprehension scores are low. And so do parents really make the connection between social emotional the brain and academics. That's just what kept coming up, maybe because that's what I'm focused on here on the podcast. It just kept coming up to me throughout. And that was what he posed back to me. Did they really understand the research? Well, this is a nationally representative group of parents. And so this gives you a picture of what parents actually think, not what we wish they thought. So I don't I think the answer is that if you call it social and emotional learning, a lot of parents that does not resonate for them. And so if that means they don't know the research, maybe that's what it is. Also, maybe it's just being communicated to them in a way that they don't really see themselves in. 
Um, but I, I, I don't know. I mean, I, you know, I think most parents think that empathy is important, but do they think that schools are the place that you're supposed to learn it or that the, it's supposed to be something that's in the curriculum and explicitly taught? I mean, the truth is most parents did say, the vast majority of parents said that empathy should is something that their kids should learn in school. There are a few groups of parents where that support was a little softer, but I think that you know you should be encouraged by the fact that it was it was maybe the last one in the list of social and emotional skills, but it was still getting eighty percent support among parents. Got it. Got it. That brings me. I want to bring that up at the end with regards to where this fits in because parent uh, view and whether it should be taught in the classroom, that's important as well. But I want to go to your finding number three, where you talked about across the political spectrum, parents regard families as the most important entities for cultivating SEL, yet there's partisan differences regarding how and where to emphasize this instruction. And so I wasn't surprised when I saw the term social emotional learning being less popular than life skills, if you mentioned. But uh, I still didn't see the clarity behind people understanding what these skills were. And I have followed Stephanie Jones's work from Harvard's Easel Lab that I feel like you might have gotten your um, your survey questions from because she. That's right. We were aligned with some of her her work. That's correct. Again, do you feel like if there was some sort of maybe um, before you did the survey, if every single SEL competency was defined, do you think the results would have come out different from the survey? Or what do you think about that? I'm not sure. I, I think that we had to thread the needle between making sure that the parents who did the survey, and again, these are not expert parents, these are regular parents, and that making sure that they uh, were given definitions where that was helpful so that we weren't just giving them some term and then just only getting their impression of the words in that term, but not defining it uh, where, where that would have been misleading, but also not trying to lead them because our job is not to tell them what to think. Our job is to find with a survey. Now I work for a think tank. Sometimes we are doing papers trying to change people's minds about things, but when we do a survey, we want it to reflect what that population thinks so that we can understand their perspectives and see where there may be gaps in the way that elites talk about something and regular people talk about it or whatever else. So um, I think that you know we did our best to thread that needle, to define things where it was helpful and to leave things undefined if we wanted to just kind of get their impression of a term, which is what we did in that one where we we're talking about life skills and social emotional learning and stuff. We, we left them undefined in that case, although we had defined social emotional learning earlier for, for them in the uh, in the survey, but um, you also have to worry about exhaustion when you're doing a survey. I know this is kind of the technical stuff that no one wants to think about when they're thinking about survey results, but the more stuff you start asking people, the more stuff you ask them to read, the that can actually create problems in your survey by give, by making them kind of not really want to read all of it and and maybe kind of skip through or not read it very closely or some people read it and some people don't so you have to be real careful and that's why we worked with YouGov to construct this survey instrument that we thought would be valid and reliable to the best of our ability and so the the short answer is we defined it in some places we didn't define it in other places but we thought it was very important um, to give people the information that was going to solicit their actual opinions and not to try to put words in their mouth or try to lead them in a certain direction. That makes sense. 
So finding number four. So parents were split regarding the extent to which schools should focus on SEL, which I, I think is an important topic here because I've heard about it um, for the whole time that I've been involved in this. Back when I was a teacher in the late 90s, these were not skills that were thought to be important in our schools. They were called soft skills. Mm -hmm. And then over the years, I've watched Castle go from eight states in the US that we're implementing to now all 50. And I'm also a parent of two beautiful girls that I want to raise with these SEL skills. And, uh, and when they're younger and they listen, they were setting goals. Every summer I had chart paper up on their walls and they set their academic and sports goals and fun things that they wanted to do. But the minute they hit a certain age, they roll their eye at me when I start trying to implement these. So when they, for the ones that said, you know, I think they, they need to be taught at home because we're taking up too much time. What, what do you think? Do you think they've actually tried to implement some of this stuff with them or what did you find? I think so. I mean, I think every parent does some of this stuff with their kids. I mean, it'd be almost impossible to be a parent and not do some of this stuff. Um, I mean, one thing that we found in the survey that was really a, a, a place of agreement across types of parents was that parents overwhelmingly view social and emotional learning as being most centralized in the family. That the parents, if when you ask them who's most responsible for social and emotional learning, they say parents, other family members, the child, him or herself, and then a distant fourth is teachers. And then we start getting into other school actors, faith communities, stuff like that. But the top three are right there in the family. And that's true whether you're Democrat or Republican or whatever. Parents see the family as the place that is most responsible for social emotional learning. So that doesn't mean schools don't have a role. Doesn't mean that schools don't have, you know, have a very crucial role. If the families are falling down on the job, if the family is instilling bad values or bad habits in the, you know, or, or, or just kind of not instilling much at all, then the schools may actually, you know, be, need to step in even more. But um, the, the, the family is, everyone agreed. I mean, I should say like 90% of people said parent is a parent's that are most responsible for this. So that makes me think that to your question, they are doing this stuff. They, it was parents who filled this out and they said they themselves were the ones most responsible for cultivating this stuff. And the survey was mostly about the implementation of SEL in schools. We're an education policy think tank. We're thinking about education policy, but you know, one of the things we find is that this is something that families really have a, a central role to play, one that's probably more important than the, the one that the schools play. However, greatly important it is that teachers and administrators are thinking about this stuff. It's something that families have to cultivate as well. And so, yeah, from the results of the survey, I think it's pretty clear that parents see this as their, one of their most important responsibilities and that they are doing uh, stuff related to this. Some of them think it's more their role and maybe the school should kind of stay out of it. I think there's a few people who think that, although, like I said, that's a, a minority view among even the subgroups that are most skeptical of SEL. Got it. So when I, when I was looking at that question, I was thinking of it from the point of view of an educational publisher, because I spent six years with Pearson education. And so I see the idea of it being taught in the home because I'm a parent and I've been trying to do this with my kids. 
and then I see it in our schools. And then, you know, that the argument that there's not enough time is taking away from the academics. And then I also see it from the side of, of the person that's creating the curriculum for our students. And where I, or I've always seen, and I've always tried to put this into the products that, that we were selling when I was at Pearson, I was always on the product development team saying, we need to have these skills implemented in the curriculum. And people would roll their eyes and say, well, what's, what's she talking about now? Because at the time that I was in Pearson, these skills were not in the schools. This was before Castle created their five competencies. And I was a little bit ahead of the game with what, what I saw. So what, what I see still is a math sheet with a breakout box with uh, like a growth mindset box that would say, you don't have the problem yet keep trying like something like that that would give the student so, so that's where i see that someone that wouldn't know the a parent that's sitting at home thinks i need to just be the one doing all the work i feel like all of us can do a little bit more we could all work together parents publishers teachers community sports it's all got to be a common language what do you think about that well the if we're, I don't know that we always have to have a common language and because I think SEL, you were kind of saying that the definition we used was a little broader than one of the other definitions you like better. So there, SEL has some very specific definitions associated with it. And you talk to some experts in this, they'll say, you know, it's these specific, um, you know, skills that are aligned to these practices. And, and so that's, fine. Um, but for if parents are an important constituency here, then we have to be able to talk about it in a way that regular people can talk about it too. And so that means that maybe we don't always have to have the same language. Maybe if we're talking about something, you know, you know life skills has a very different connotation to me. If you were to bring up life skills, I might, you know, kind of push back on it. But if we were both kind of agreeing about something or an SEL that we wanted to do, we might, if we were going to talk to parents about it, we might want to lead with another term or make sure that we're very concrete about what we mean and to, are talking about the specific practices and well, what does this mean? Well, this means making sure that your child knows that just because they did bad on their math test doesn't mean they're bad at math, that if they work harder, they might get better at math and that their ability is actually changeable, right? So that's something that is important for them to know. And if you explain it in a concrete way, they might latch onto it. If you use a kind of more abstract terminology or or try to, you know, kind of use the these ivory tower like terms, it might not appeal to them as much. So I think that um, you know, how how we how we do this to the extent that we need to involve families, which seems like it's a pretty to a pretty large extent, we need to involve families in this and other people like you know youth leaders in the community and and other community organizations. Coaches are often. Um, you know, I think the the intuition for a lot of people is that coaches are the ones that taught them a lot of these skills by you know, teaching them to keep trying and they'd make the team eventually if they kept practicing every day and stuff like that. Um, they're, they're a part of this conversation, too. We need to have a broader and, and more kind of lay friendly language, maybe. Got it. Well, throughout the report, you have these little breakouts that I thought were pretty important that um, that I wonder if we could just discuss because you put them in the report they're there 
One of them was from a father of a fifth grader that says confidence is built by doing, not by talking about how to do it. Mm. Now, I hear about this all the time. How do you teach these skills in the classroom? What do you think about what that father was talking about? So in the survey, we, again, it's a nationally representative survey. We have people from all walks of life, parents, I should say, parents of all walks of life who have students in the K-12 system. And in that survey, we gave them a couple of opportunities to give, you know, give their opinions in their own words. You know, if we'd had them kind of, you know, clicking buttons and, you know, do you like this better than that? And doing a lot of those kind of exercises that were framed for them, but we wanted to give them an opportunity to speak in their own words. And so there were a couple of opportunities for them in that, uh, in that survey. And many parents took us up on that and gave us their raw opinions about it. And those opinions were all over the place. There were people who believed that social emotional learning was the most important thing in the world. And they, you know, just talked about connected it to academics, connected it to racial injustice, connected it to a lot of other problems that they saw. And then we had some people who thought that the whole thing was BS and said that directly in their their comments and thought, you know, that it was a socialist conspiracy and that there, there were people who had all kinds of different views. Of course, most of the views were somewhere in between those extremes. But we, when you survey 2000 parents of all walks of life, you get all kinds of different responses. And so we included some perspectives throughout the report. We selected some quotes from some of them that we thought gave a little bit of the texture of some of those. We didn't necessarily use the most extreme ones because some of those maybe were unprintable anyway, but we did want to give some of that texture and show the voices of those, you know, um, give an opportunity or give a, a venue for those raw voices. And um, and so in, in this case, the one that you brought up, this parent was saying that they, that, you know, you, you don't get, you don't get these skills by talking about them, you get them by doing them. And you're saying that you can see the value in talking about them before you do them. And I can honestly see both sides of this. I think that uh, my personal opinion on this is that talking about them some is good. I did that in my family. We talked about it some, but I also think that we shouldn't ignore the way that social and emotional learning can happen implicitly or indirectly because for it to be for a student to learn self-confidence, for example, and this is a good example for what this gentleman brought up, self-confidence, you don't get by talking about self-confidence, I don't think. I mean, that's something we've tried in the U.S. for a long time, self-esteem movement, give everybody a trophy, give everybody a gold star, tell everybody they're doing great. Well, students are, kids are smarter than that. They know that like if they didn't do well, they, you know, and then you praised everyone equally, like they figure this out. Maybe they don't when they're really tiny, but they do by the time that they're in school. And and so what he was saying was like, if you, you know, for some of these things like self, self-esteem, I think it's true. You have to face some barriers and overcome them and then say, hey, I actually could do it when I put my mind to it. When I put effort to it, I was able to actually change my circumstances. And so I think it probably depends on the social and emotional skill we're talking about, which is more important, the explicit stuff, actually talking about it, actually having that conversation and learning about it. Sometimes learning the science about it can be helpful. And I think um, you know, some of the stuff around 
uh, you know, Angela Duckworth stuff around grit, I think has shown that, you know, if you tell people that their math abilities are changeable and you just explain the science to them, they take a different approach that that can, that can be valuable. Um, so I think there's probably a place for that explicit stuff, but then there's probably going to be places where just holding students accountable, getting them to realize that there's consequences to their actions, both good and bad, that that's the real world. And that, you know, if they, if they work hard, that they're going to do better. And if they slack off or distract the rest of the class, that there's, that's going to be met with negative consequences. That can also be a form of social and emotional learning. It's not what most people mean by social and emotional learning, but it's definitely social and emotional learning in the, you know, by the literal sense, mm -hmm. because you're learning the rules of the little society that you're living in. Like I can't break these rules without consequences or that if I put effort in, I'm going to see a, a positive outcome and, uh, and it's connected to the emotions in an important way as well. So, um, I, I guess I kind of see both sides to it, Andrea. I, I see your point that explicit instruction can be valuable, but I also think we shouldn't think that SEL is something that is only about having a class or having a little box that shows a lesson next to your math program. It also comes from just students seeing positive consequences to hard work. Um, we have research, we've done some of this research at the Fordham Institute, there's a growing body of, of evidence that shows that when students have teachers who hold them to higher standards, that is that they are harder graders, that they give more students C's and worse grades and give, gr give lower grades for the same level of performance, that students learn more from those teachers who hold them to a higher standard and were tougher graders. When students think I might get a C in this class, they study more and they, and they end up learning more. There's a growing body of evidence of that. I think that's a form of social and emotional learning, although it's not in the caseal wheel, I don't think, but it, it definitely needs to, I think this implicit stuff and, you know, modeling good behavior modeling common decency and common sense for students, learning through literature. Those are all ways of doing social emotional learning that don't detract in any way from academics. And that may be in many cases, the most effective forms of, of social and emotional learning. Definitely. And what I liked about your, your breakout boxes or your poll is that I've actually pulled students in this way. So when I had my program running in the schools, I had to ask the students to fill out a questionnaire based on what they had learned for my data at the end of the, the program. And the same thing happened. Some students gave you know feedback that I could use and other students said things that I'm like, okay, I can't, definitely can't put this anywhere. And I got to see what, what kids really thought about what I was doing with them, which was eye-opening. The next comment that I wanted to talk about was the fluff one. Until our students are leading the world in mathematics, science, and reading skills, we don't need to worry about fluff. And I interviewed Dr. Rady, who his work, um, he really showed the, the tie towards aerobic exercise and academics that there's a clear cut and the students that exercised before class, they were leaders in this um, international math and science study. And so when I have a parent like that, I just think, gosh, does, does, like, does she know about Dr. Rady's book? Like, we don't need to know about the fluff. Well, 
the fluff or, or is here, it's getting our students to, um, to excel in college and career. So I just like when I see something like that, I remember the students that were poo pooing what I was doing with them saying this is garbage, this is a waste of time. I heard all those sorts of comments from students versus this is helping me um, in my job after school. It's helping me communicate with my family better. So when you see someone that calls it fluff, what, what did that make you think? Well, I think it's a common trope in education. And we talked about earlier that, um, you know, the three R's that that school should be about reading, writing, arithmetic, that it should be about core academic functions and that um, a lot of the things that are going on in schools are about things that distract from those. And so that's a very common trope. Uh, it's something that a lot of parents think on some level. And I think maybe it's because they're skeptical that it's going to be done in a good way. And I think you're right that some of them are just not uh, aware that those things are connected more than they think they are, that you're going to maybe do math better if you did some yoga earlier or something like that. I, I'm definitely open to, to that idea. I, I think that's quite possible. And that, you know, if it's about, um, you know, fostering self-confidence and stuff like that, that that can be helpful. But let's not forget that the experts have led us astray on this some. I mean, the self-esteem movement's a great example of it because it was a huge fad for decades that we needed to praise the hell out of these kids so that they would know that they could go out and do anything. And kids figured out that it was not actually real pretty soon. And it didn't really, you know, we've got this thing with you, you survey, you, you look at American kids and their, uh, you know, perceptions of their math ability versus their actual math ability. And you'll see that it, among countries, American kids have the most belief in their math ability. They're, oh, we can do everything. <laughs> and when it actually comes down to their math ability, it's actually quite mediocre. And so, it's some of the stuff has been poorly implemented in the past. And so that that throws people off and it makes them skeptical that this kind of stuff is really going to be effective. And so we have to prove that it will be. I mean, another problem is that people bash standardized tests all the time and then they sound like they want to substitute some of this stuff for the academics. And a lot of people immediately have a negative reaction to that. They think you're trying to substitute core academic stuff or paper over the fact that you can't succeed in academics by implementing other stuff instead. And that's not totally crazy. I mean, like that's not a, that, that may be, that's not my perspective exactly, but I understand the concern that it could, that these, this stuff could detract from the core academic functions of schools if it's not done well. And a lot of people think that the schools won't do it well because they have a low opinion about the schools in general. So, and not all of that is completely unearned. So um, I think uh, I think there's there's room for, you know, listening to those voices. I think it's important to kind of hold ourselves accountable for this stuff and to see that if, if we're really gonna make a difference to these kids, that we have to be able to engage parents who are skeptics and we have to prove to them that we can do this well. And it's not just about showing them a scientific study. It's about showing them how it works for their kid. And, and I think that, you know, that will, will be more effective in, in SEL if, if we do that better. Definitely. And I know we're kind of coming close to the end here, but I do want to put one last one in. Do we have time to add one more of the little quotes in before we kind of wrap this up? 
I've got time. Okay, perfect. The last one that I wanted to focus on was that teachers aren't therapists, schools need more therapists and social workers. And, mm. and I just see the shift between, you know, when I was a teacher, what the focus was, was all on the curriculum. And then how schools now have to become more trauma informed. We've got Dr. Bruce Perry coming up on the podcast in October. He wrote the book, What Happened to You with Oprah, that really helps any person, any educator, any parent understand that we've got to understand that our kids um, have experiences in life that um, make them act out in the classroom. And I had a classroom of behavioral students and couldn't handle them. That's why I quit. I burned out very quickly because I wasn't, um, teachers college didn't train me in this. So what do you think about that? How there's a shift now towards being more trauma informed, especially after the pandemic? I think it's so hard because it's so obviously needed. Uh, you know, the pandemic, these the social and emotional needs of students um, are, are obviously have to be addressed. Um, and it's also at the same time so difficult because we're asking teachers already to do so much. And we, you know, we know there's a robust literature that what makes teachers really effective at getting students to learn their academics is that, that the teachers are observing other teachers do their job, taking notes, having other teachers observe them, give them criticism and knowing their subject really well, inside and out. If they're a history teacher, that they're up on the literature, that they're reading books about history. Those are the things that make teachers really great at getting academic results. But if we put them in PD to do all of these things that are really something that is maybe more applicable to a social worker or to a counselor or to a, to a clergy person or, or something else, we're kind of, they only have so many hours in the day. They only have so many PD sessions a year. And so that's going to detract from their ability to do their core academic function. And so um, I wish I could say, I didn't think there was any trade-off there, but I do think that it's hard to know what we're asking teachers to do because they're being asked to do a lot and they're already overworked and underpaid. And we're already having trouble getting the academic results that we want. And the more that we ask them to do in terms of trauma informed and learning about these different studies and everything, it's a legitimate concern that, that could distract them from their core academic mission. And so I actually just think it's a difficult question. I don't, I, I would never prescribe what that I think that teachers shouldn't do some of that stuff because I think that it can be very helpful for them connecting with their students in some cases. But I also think it's important that we not ask teachers to do too much. And I think that's what the, the, the respondent there was saying was like, teachers aren't trained to do all of this stuff. Um, they need to be focused on academics. And there's some wisdom there too. So I, I don't know. Some of these kids need a lot of interventions and need a lot of, they're not getting it in their family and they're not in a supportive environment already. They may need a, a lot more than what a teacher who has hundreds of students and, and is, or, you know, a hundred students or something and, and is trying to get them to learn algebra can, can really provide. And I think we need to think about how we can make sure that communities are providing the support for them in a way that is, is, 
you know, giving more support to their academics and freeing up space for them to do that, having a safe place to study, having a safe place to talk about their problems, but is supportive of their academics and not kind of crowding it out. Mm -hmm. Adam, what would be your final thoughts? What do you want to leave people about this report after you've written it? You've been immersed in the research. I, I thought it was very well done. Of course, I had so many questions and I could keep asking you questions, but what, what do you wanna leave people with about the report? Well, I mean, so the report in its entirety is available on FordhamInstitute.org. We have five key findings, four recommendations. There's a lot of stuff in there that we weren't able, able to cover in this conversation. Um, but I mean, I think that the, you know, different people are going to have different takeaways depending on their role in all this. Parents are probably going to see this one way. Teachers may see this another way. Administrators, students may see this in a different way. People who are more concerned about, you know, one aspect of this may may have one thing that latches onto them. Um, I guess for me, I think one of the takeaways from the report that was so powerful when we talked about it earlier was that democrat or republican or black white hispanic regardless everybody sees families as the place where social and emotional learning is most located and so whether you're a parent or whether you're a teacher you need to make sure that you are looping in families and that you're getting them involved, that this isn't something that is just happening in schools. In fact, schools may not be the most important place for it at all. And so we need to make sure that we're communicating across those different groups. And so that means parents you know, obviously have a key role. That's what they said. It's a, this was mostly their role. And so they're taking that responsibility, but that also means that they need to be in, in communication with the teachers who have their have their kids for you know several hours each day, and that parents and administrators are uh, finding ways to to loop in parents to how you know get them to know some of the research that you were talking about, so that they can understand how best to build that stuff in their students, so they're not, for example, you know reinforcing bad habits for the students at home so that they can help to encourage them and to give them the right kinds of uh, accountability at home and incentives at home that they're letting them know if they get their homework done, that's a good thing and that they're encouraging them in those ways and holding them accountable if their grades come back bad. So if they're working on the same team and so that the students are working on the same team too because most students don't wanna be bad at this stuff. And so um, I think just the working across across groups like that is the probably the thing that we most need to work on and uh, and of course that that's related to the language we use that we talked about uh before and uh and just making sure that the adults are are, are all kind of rowing in the same direction so i think uh i think there's a lot to that other people may take away from this report and we encourage them. We, we built a website for this one. So you don't even have to download a PDF or anything. You can just scan through it on your tablet or whatever and whatever device you use uh, phone or whatever. Um, and, and I think others will, will, will check it out and probably have their own takeaways. We would encourage them to be in contact with us and tell us what they took away from it. And, um, and, you know, thanks again, Andrew, for, for having me on the podcast. Oh, for sure. Thank you so much. I want to thank you for your time, for your research. So many takeaways for me. Of course, I have to print mine off because I like writing throughout. So highlighting and writing ideas and 
Brainstorming, I think educators could print or, you know, have a discussion, have a staff meeting about it. I think talking about these ideas really bring them to light. And that's the only way we're going to prog make progress forward. So thank you so much for anyone that wants to find the report. I'll clearly put all the links in the show notes. And thank you so much for your time, ideas and creativity with this report. Thanks so much, Adrian. Thank you. If you're enjoying the Neuroscience Meets Social and Emotional Learning podcast, please don't forget to subscribe so you'll stay up to date with our new episode. While you're there, please feel free to give us a review or a five-star rating as it helps others find us. For more information on our programs, books, and tools for schools and the workplace, visit us at www.achieveit360.com. 